I grew up uh, just a couple of blocks from here in a uh, devout Roman Catholic family. And uh, my parents were very, um, very devout, very serious about being Roman Catholics. As, as is evident with me, you know that didn't take fully or not for long anyway, but uh, very consistent in uh, what they wanted for us. Really, they wanted us to, to know God and have a relationship with God. For them, that was carried out through the Catholic faith, but uh, very consistent. There's so much I love about my upbringing uh, from my mom and dad. One of the things, one of the elements about my life growing up, uh, you'd never hear cussing in my parents' home. That just did not happen. That was part of their ethic, their ethos, you know. And so as I was growing up, uh, cussing was not part of my vocabulary until I got a little older. And no doubt it started before this, but I went to work for a roofing company. And if you work in the contracting trades, uh, roofers are usually seen sort of as the bottom of the barrel. And I'm not implying anything about that this morning. But uh, their language was a bit saltier than what I'd come from. And you know what I found over time? Uh, I found that words that I used to think sounded crude and offensive began to take on sort of a, a, a more pleasing tone. And that if I needed to you know, make some emphasis or add some weight to a point... Why a cuss word just really seemed to just fit right in. And, and, you know, I really didn't think about it much over time, but my speech changed based on the guys I was hanging out with. And by the way, they were very good at what they did and took great pride in their work. And actually, guys that I really grew to care for. Uh, later on as a Christian, uh, first probably five years or so of Kathy's and my marriage, I worked for a company here in Topeka that installed pools and spas. And one of the guys that worked there, his name was Ed Niles. And Ed was a very, very slight figure. He was just thin as a rail and somewhat short. All his clothes looked too big, you know. He couldn't get anything small enough for him. But uh, Ed was quite a character. And he had come out of the Air Force. And his job in the Air Force was electronic repair. And so that's not appliances. That's not dryers and washers, you know. That's, that's airplane equipment. And so he'd been trained in the disciplines of troubleshooting systems to find out what was wrong. And so he brought this very disciplined way of seeing life and interacting with electronic systems into his work in pool and spa repair. And as I hung out with Ed Niles, I aspired to be like Ed because I wanted to be able to take systems apart, see their component parts, and figure out what's going on, what's wrong. And so... The discipline that I saw in his life and this skill, really this almost art form of figuring out what was going wrong, I aspired to. So the longer I worked with the guy we called Slippery Ed Niles, he was loved by everybody there, uh, I developed some of his skill set. I brought that into my life too. And then last, one of the key mentors in my early life about the same time I was working at the pool and spa company was a gentleman named Dick Ayers. He was my friend then. He's my friend today. And, you know, as a young Christian, who I, I wanted to read all the time, so I was reading all this new information, reading my Bible all the time, 
And, you know, suddenly my head is filled with stuff and I think I know something. You know, that's dangerous. And so I started sharing my opinion with others. And that's even more dangerous. And so I'm meeting with Dick and and Dick would call me to account on these things. And we look at the Bible together and he was very straightforward on one hand, but very gracious on the other. And, and I realized, matter of fact, I've asked him later, Dick, did you have any hope for me? When we started meeting, do you have any hope that there was a chance for Mike? Uh, you know, head filled with a lot of stuff, not well informed. But when I hung out with Dick, I saw this, uh, this humble but direct, kind of speaking the truth in love manner of mentoring men like me. And so I tried to pick up on some of those traits too. Directness, loving, gentle, kind. If some of you have met with me, I don't know if you'd say any of that caught or not. Probably some no. Uh, but I was trying to develop that skill set because that's what I saw in Dick. Now you can see the thread in each one of these arenas, can't you? I was becoming like the people I spent time with. I was developing traits that I saw in them. I was being transformed, my values, my speech, the way I thought, based on who I was spending time with. And we are in week two of a series uh, called God's Will for Your Life Is. And this morning we're focusing on this, this, that God's will for your life is transformation. And guys, I'm convinced of this for myself, for our church, for the church in general. Christianity is in sort of the sorry state that it is, I would say in, our, in the West, is in the sorry state that it is for a lack of transformation. That we're still like the milieu we grow up in. We haven't been transformed into the people God means us to be. We're still caught in another framework, in another grid, and we haven't got God's vision for our life on what that can look like and what He wants it to look like because we're not transformed the way He has called us to be. God's will for our life is transformation. Let me pray too before we look in the Scriptures together. Father, would You guide our, our thoughts so that we see Jesus more fully. Lord, help us to delight in Him and in that delight be transformed into His image. In His name, Amen. You know, I'm convinced too, part of the pride of, uh, of our age is this, that we tend to think that we've arrived on the scene full-blown with an objectivity that allows us to look down the quarters of time and history or look across the street at our neighbors or look at our culture and have this objective framework by which we can discern and judge everything around us that somehow we're immune to these influences that affect others, that, that they don't affect us. The truth is, guys, because of the way we're made, you are always becoming something. None of us here are objective in any ultimate sense. And we are all being transformed. You can't help it. You're becoming something. You're becoming more fully something. You're becoming less something. But you're, you and I, in our life on this earth, we're always becoming. And you can't help it because it's wired into the nature of your humanity. If you go to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, when God's talking about bringing man onto the scene in the creation account, He says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the cattle, the earth, etc. Verse 27, God created man in His own image. 
in the image of God, He created Him. We are created as image bearers. We are created as reflectors of God and His character. There's nothing absolutely original about any of us. In fact, you can't get there. You and I are meant in our humanity to be image bearers. We will always bear the image of something or someone because we're reflectors. You know, we say of someone, he's a real original. But friends, none of us are originals. We're all reproductions. And we're all taking our cues from someone or something. It can't be otherwise. If you're a human, it can't be otherwise. So the question for us is not, are we becoming something? Are we being transformed? The question is, into what are we becoming? Into what image are we being transformed? That's the question. Not if, but what. What do we take our cues from? Jesus said it this way in Luke 6.40, A disciple is not greater than his teacher, Everyone, when fully trained, will be like his teacher. You know, back in the rabbinical days of Jesus, if you followed a rabbi, a teacher, a mentor, you didn't just learn what he taught, you aspired to be like him. Well, this cause and effect, it goes on in your life and mine too. We may not necessarily someone say is my rabbi, but we're taking cues from others. And we're becoming something or someone based on who we aspire to, who we look up to, what we value. So if you said, based on your current trajectory, what's your trajectory of transformation? And what is it based on? Where does that come from? Who or what do you aspire to right now? That is what you're being transformed into. We're not originals, we're reproductions. Now... Hopefully you got a study sheet. Point two on there, we're transformed into the image of what we worship. There's a book by G.K. Beale called We Become What We Worship. It's a profound book. And he goes through all of the Bible to talk about this very dynamic, that we are being transformed. And ultimately, it's the object of our worship that determines what we're being transformed into. G.K. Beale, We Become What We Worship. So, If anything that we talk about here this morning stirs you, that's a book worth having. It's a great book. He says this. He picks up this theme from Psalm 115 about the object of our worship determining the pattern of our transformation. So the psalmist there says, why should the nation say, where now is their God? You know, if you're a Jew, you serve a God you can't see. But the, the, the pagan nations, they have gods that you can see. They have statues. So the Jewish psalmist says, why should the nation say, where now is their God? We can't see Him. Where is He? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. The psalmist says it's not that He's not around. He's transcendent. He's not small and fixed geographically like your gods. He's transcendent. He's over creation. He's in heavens. And he does whatever he pleases. He has power to do as he pleases. Unlike your gods. So he compares Yahweh, Jehovah, God the Father, to the idols of the nations. And he says, their idols, here he doesn't even call them gods, but these are the gods they worship. Their idols. Their idols, he says, are silver and gold. They're just metal out of the dirt. 
They're the work of man's hands. These idols have mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they can't see. You get the picture. They're impotent. They have ears they can't hear, noses can't smell, hands can't feel, feet they can't walk, they cannot make a sound with their throat. And this is the clincher, verse 8. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. So the psalmist is saying their transformation process is taken after a statue. The statue is impotent. What does that mean for their transformation? They're impotent too. Their transformation will be vacuous. It will leave them empty. There will be nothing to it because their God, the object of their worship, has nothing in it. Nothing behind it. Nothing to give them. Psalm 135 says the same thing. Same kind of contrast and concludes there in verse 18. Those who make them, their idols will be like them. Everyone who trusts in them. Back in Psalm 115, he's contrasted the two. And because he says this is what you get from idols, you just get what they can get, give you. Impotence, nothing. He says, O Israel, trust in the Lord. Now, if God's your trust, now you're going somewhere on being transformed. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. If you trust in the Lord, if He's your trust, He's the object of your worship, He is the image that you're bearing more and more fully in your transformation. So, God, Yahweh, transcendent versus idols. We kid ourselves, and we'll talk about this a little bit more fully in a moment, we kid ourselves when we think that we don't practice idolatry. We do. We do. We worship pleasure and ease. We worship popularity. We worship the image of eternal youth. We worship others worshiping us. We worship materialism in uncountable ways. We are worshipers. Guys, you can't get away from this. We are worshipers. We're made to worship. We will worship someone. We'll worship something. You can't get away from that by our humanity. We're made to worship. And even if we say, no, I'm my own man, you're still worshiping something or someone. And that directs your transformation. The object of your worship. Now, Jesus is ultimately meant to be the object of our worship. And if He is then our transformation will make us look like Him. And that is God's will for our life. So when we say God's will for your life is transformation, it's not any transformation. It's transformation into the image of God's Son. And that's a good thing. We talked about God's will in salvation and regeneration last week, and everything from here on is predicated on that, right? If you don't have that new birth, you can't have the transformation into Christ's image. You need a new life. You need a new nature. But when a person is born again through faith in Jesus, they do have a new nature. And as that new spiritual life is fed the truth of God's Word in the fellowship of the church, in humility towards the Spirit, then transformation into Christ's image occurs more and more fully. Most of us know Romans 8.28 by heart that God will cause all things to work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. We quote that, it gives us comfort. You know, things are going bad, we say, God will use that. You know, somehow He'll wire in the rest of our life. Somehow that thing will come about for our good. But we don't connect it to verse 29, but we're meant to. So verse 29 says, those whom God foreknew, 
He predestined, He chose, He determined that they would be conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers. So, God's will for your life and mine is that we become conformed to the image of His Son. Verse 28 says that God will use everything in your life and mine towards that good end. So when you say, I wonder how God will use this thing for good in my life, the good thing is Christ's image in you. So you know, as I'm faced with a temptation, something that's hard, I know that God's will is conformity to Christ. So in that moment, I know that's the good God's working towards. And I can say, Lord, this is hard for me, but I know Your will is transformation into Christ's image. Would You reproduce Christ's quality, whatever it is that I need in this situation? thankfulness or humility, whatever, whatever it is. That's the good towards which God is working all things. It's conformity into Jesus' image. Now, if you wonder, what does Jesus look like? What does me conforming to Jesus' image look like? Obviously, we're not talking about physical stature or appearance, are we? We look very differently. That wouldn't be possible if it's physical, would it? Not at all. But if you look in the gospel, certainly you see Jesus directly and you see that he's just and he's merciful. You see that he knows what's going on. He's truthful. You know, another great place, though, to look if I want to know what does Jesus life in me look like is Galatians 5 verses 22 and 23, because there Paul lists the fruit of the spirit. And the fruit of the spirit are really character qualities of Jesus. So if I want to know what does it look like in my life or yours to be transformed into more Christ-likeness, that's a pretty good place to look. So Paul tells me that Jesus is loving. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are Jesus' character qualities. That's a pretty good hit list for me to look at and say, does my life look like that? Because that's who and what Jesus is like. That those are His character qualities. As I look at my life, do I see those qualities in me? If I don't, or if I see significant deficits in any of those, I say, I know God wants to transform me into more of Christ in that arena. If I'm not loving. If I don't bring joy and peace with me into the relationships with others. I know I'm not like Christ. Those are the areas of transformation I need. 2 Corinthians 3.18 is another passage that talks about this transforming process. So we know from Romans 8.29, we know God's will is transformation into Christ's image. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3.18 how that goes about. How does that happen? Jesus is the model, and I see what He's like, but how do I get from where I'm at towards Jesus' character qualities. How do I get from here to there? So in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we'll look at this in a couple different translations just to get a nuance on thought here. Paul says, we with unveiled face, and that's a reference back to Moses. When Moses talked to God, his face glowed from God's glory being reflected off Moses. Moses was becoming like Yahweh in this glory But then the glory would fade, and so Moses put a veil over his face. So there was a veil between Moses and God or God's glory. Paul says, for us, there's no veil. 
It's just us and the Lord, us before the Lord. Paul says, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. The phrase here in the New American Standard, beholding as in a mirror, gives us this thought. The Spirit is at work in me. When I look in the mirror, I'm seeing Christ in me. The Spirit is reproducing Christ in me. And I could actually, spiritually, with spiritual eyes, I can look in the mirror and see the ways I'm changing and becoming more like Christ as I behold God and His work that's going on in me. I can see it. If you read in the ESV, it simply says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. There's no mirror image there. And there's just some debate on how best to translate that passage. At the end of the day, the thought is the same though. So, Paul says, as I behold Christ... I become like Him. As I fix my gaze on Jesus, I become like the object of my gaze. So, God's will is transformation into Christ's image. The means is to see Christ as He is. And the more fully the eyes of my heart are open to see Him, the more fully I'm being transformed into His image. I become like Him the more I see Him and know Him. So, How do I behold Christ? If that's the transformation process, how do I behold Christ? I'll bet you have a guess on a few of these anyway. Would reading your Bible be a good place to start to behold Christ? That'd be a good place to start, wouldn't it? So, you know, we just finished not long ago a 12-part series in which we looked at just in the book of Genesis alone, We looked at 12 ways God the Father always intended us to see Jesus in people, events, occasions in Genesis 12, just there. You remember Luke 24, Jesus walks with His disciples. He goes back to the Old Testament. He says, these are the things that spoke of Me. The Bible is filled with Jesus. And if you read the Bible and all you get are a list of rules and regulations and I clean up my life here, I do this or that, we've missed it. We're meant to see Christ as we read our Bible. So, we've got to be reading our Bibles. We see Christ in the Bible. That's where we're meant to see Him. Another way that we see Christ is to pray. <clears throat> and when I say pray here, I'm not so much talking about the request, God please help, God please save, you know, God please take care of, though that's all fine and appropriate. You know, Jesus in the model of prayer says, you know, give us this day our daily bread. We're aware of those needs and we pray for that. But here I'm really just talking about I'm hanging out with the Lord in prayer. I'm just spending time with Him. I'm sort of unloading to Him what I'm thinking about. And in my mind, in prayer with the Lord, I'm just turning things over. You know, what's going on? What do I need to do? What do I need to understand? And as I do, I find that inevitably I'm drawn more closely to Christ. I'm just hanging out with Him in prayer. I'm just quieting my soul before Him. I'm trying to think His thoughts and I'm thinking through things with Him. I'm just fellowshipping with the Lord. But He shows up and He draws near to me as I draw near to Him. So another way we behold Christ is simply to spend time with Him in prayer. It doesn't have to be loud or flashy. Quietly with the Lord in prayer. Another way we do this is we simply remember what Jesus has done for us. Um, one of the things that's been helpful for me recently, you know when you're convicted of sin, it's painful. And we are, we are given a conscience by which 
uh, shame tells us you've done wrong. And that's painful. Really painful. I mean, it's embarrassing. It's humbling. You know, for me, I've been thinking about Christ on the cross recently. There's debate on this, but that you know, when you crucified a man, you stripped them naked. And so any image of you see of Jesus, he's got the loincloth on, but we don't know that he had anything on. Okay, He might have had absolutely naked. But the thought is, I'm thinking about Christ on the cross. I'm convicted of sin. It's painful. It's shameful. I feel ashamed or embarrassed, right? But then I think about Christ on the cross naked. He's bearing my shame, you see. I don't have to worry about being embarrassed. Jesus has already borne my shame when He died for my sins on the cross. Well, as I think about that, I feel free. And, and I appreciate Jesus in a way I didn't before. Jesus died for my sins on the cross. We say that, but it can be meaningless. But then I think when I feel ashamed and embarrassed of my own sin, I think of Christ on the cross, naked, ashamed, bearing my shame. It's like, I get it. Or I get a little bit more fully. That's what He did for me. He took my shame. Well, that draws my heart out to Him. You know, we could go on and on. I'll bet everyone here, the ways God has blessed you in the past in one way or another. I think about that, how good He has been to me and my heart's drawn out to Him. That's the way I worship Him. I come to the meeting of the church. You know, God shows up in the church in a way He doesn't anyplace else. Just biblically. You know, two or three are gathered in My name. I'm there. And the Spirit comes in and we're convicted, right? In each other's fellowship. The Spirit's here to convict us of the truth, but also to enlarge our eyes on Christ when we worship. I hope this is true for you as it is for me. There are some Sundays when we're worshiping where I just realize... I'm just I'm realizing something about God or Christ in a way I never have before. But it's because I'm here in the midst of the church worshiping. And God draws my heart out. That's part of the way we see Him. All of this goes to that transformation process. If I'm going to be transformed into His image, I have to see Him. I'm beholding Him and His glory. Last, I'll just mention briefly, is serving others. You know, when you give yourself to be like Jesus and serve others, you'll become more like Him. You will through the act of serving. Um, I love, I've said this more than once, I love the night sky. Most mornings, most evenings, I, when it's dark, I go out. Is it cloudy or is it clear? If it's clear, I go out and I check the stars. Because I love the beauty of the stars. And you know, I love the beauty of the stars more today than I did 10 years ago and 20 years ago. And 30 years ago, because they're more familiar to me now. I know more of the constellation names, more of the star names. I know where the planets are going to be this morning. See, I'm familiar and I love it. You don't have to tell me to go and look at the stars. I love it. I love the beauty. And so I go and I look at them. Well, that's what we want with Christ. The more we know of Him, the more our heart should be drawn to Him and will be drawn to Him. But we've got to gaze. I've got to go look at those stars to appreciate them. I've got to look at Christ to appreciate who He is and what He's like. 1 John 3, 2 is on your study sheet which just says, when Jesus appears, we'll be like Him. That'll be the end of our transformation. Romans 8, it's called, we'll be glorified fully. This body will be gone. I'll have a new glorified body, live forever, and I'll fully be conformed to Jesus' image. But until that time, it's a transformation process. By way of application too, if you're a parent, let me ask you this. Um, <clears throat> your children, they grow into your image. Even if your children say, they grow up and they say, I hate you, mom or dad. 
I don't like you. I don't like what you are. They're like you. It can't be otherwise. Even if, if you're careful and they say I'm not going to be careful, they're just revolving around the same pole. But it's the same thing. So your children become like you. They're going to. Can't be otherwise. Is the model that you present day in and day out to your children, is it Christ-like? Are your children growing in conformity to Christ because you're their parent? Because they should. That should be the deal. And if not, that's a great, great way to be convicted and say, Lord, I know I'm blowing it here and I don't want my kids to have something from me that's going to hamper their transformation. You can pray about that. But that's a great, that's a bottom line question, isn't it? What are my children gaining from me? The transformation process that I'm helping them in, what does that look like? <clears throat> Kids or young adults too, let me ask you this. Who are your heroes? Who do you look up to? What musicians? Who's on the poster on your wall? Who would you say, these are my heroes? These are the people I look up to. This could be in, uh, this could be in uh, pop culture. This could be musicians, actors. This could be your parents. This could be someone you know from school. But if you say, here are my three top heroes, who are they? And then if you grow to look more like them, is that transformation into the image of Jesus? Who are your heroes? Because that's where you're going. That's, you can just trace the trajectory of your arc of transformation based on who your heroes are. Now, if you've bought this so far, and Mike says, okay, God's will for your life is transformation... And I look at my life and I say, hmm, I don't see much. Or there's transformation that's in the wrong direction. You know, we talked last week that God has a moral will, God's desire, but God also has His permissive will. He allows things. He allows us to make decisions. And therein lies the trouble, isn't it? If we say, I don't see the kind of transformation that I think I should or should have already, then there's probably some reasons for that, wouldn't you think? Let me list a few. You probably have others, but let me give you a few of the hindrances, the big ones. The first is attitude, and by this I mean humility and a willingness to repent. Humility and a willingness to repent. Paul says this in Philippians 2.5, Have this mind in you which was in Christ. If I'm being transformed into Christ's image, I'm going to have this attitude. And what attitude is that? It's humility. He existed in the form of God. But he said, I'm not going to hold on or grasp my privileges as deity. But it says he emptied himself, came down to the earth in the incarnation. He humbled himself. That passage, he humbled himself to become human, to become really a nobody in Nazareth, right? And then lower than that, to die the worst death imaginable in those days, crucifixion. So Paul says, have this attitude in you which was in Jesus. Guys, if we're proud, we are growing the opposite direction from Christ. If we don't start with a humility that informs everything we do, in fact, 1 Peter and James both say, God, He's not helping us in transformation, He's opposing us. God is opposed to the proud, but He'll give grace to the humble. So we have to start with an attitude of humility. And that recognizes, I need transformation. I'm not who or what I should be. I recognize that. And along with that, a willingness to repent. If you remember back last October, 
On Reformation Sunday, we talked about one of the phrases from the Reformation, semper reforma, always reforming. It's this acknowledgement that I've never arrived, that there's always more sins in my field, that there's vast vistas in my life that haven't been conformed to Jesus' image. And so with that humility comes this willingness to repent, to change my thoughts, my words, my actions. So if I don't start there, I really can't get far in this process of transformation. I've got to start with an attitude of humility. Sin is another big one. You could, you could, this is, goes without saying, doesn't it? I mean, sin, if I'm choosing to sin, I'm choosing not to be conformed to Jesus' image. Jesus says this in John 8.34, I tell you the solemn truth, Everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. Paul says a similar thought this way in Romans 6.16. Don't you know that if you present yourselves as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. James talks about the process of sin. I get an idea. It's a temptation. I entertain it long enough. I choose to act on it, right? Now, most of us when we sin, we say something like this. I'm just going to sin this one time. I'm just going to do this little sin for this benefit. And the thought in our mind is, I'm the puppet master and sin is the puppet. And I use sin and I sort of manage sin around this way and that and I'm the puppet master and sin is the puppet. And Paul and Jesus say, well, wrong. You're the puppet and sin is controlling you. Guys, every time we give ourselves to sin, that process in James, temptation, think about it, mull it over, mentally give myself to it, then do it. We're not in control. We're out of control. We are now the slave of sin. If I choose to sin, I can't be in that moment transformed into the image of Jesus who never sins. When I give myself to sin, I cannot be transformed into Christ's image. And guys, we do this in a million ways. We hear this Sunday morning, we do this in a million ways. It's just this little thing. It's just, I'm going to say this to this person. I know I shouldn't, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. Or I'm doing this or I'm doing that. We don't control sin, sin controls us. And that wrecks the transformation into Christ-like imagery. Another one, and this is a big one, and by the way, these build on themselves, is idols. So we might say, well, I've got a little sin, but the little sin is attached to a bigger sin, and that we might call an idol. Colossians 3.5 says this, Consider your members dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. Why? Well, those amount to idolatry. Idolatry is a particularly controlling sin. Beale says this, Greg Beale from his uh, book says this, this is his definition. Whatever your heart clings to or relies on for security, whatever claims the loyalty that belongs to God alone, that's your idol. I would add this. <clears throat> An idol is anything that takes trust, affection, security, or satisfaction that is uniquely due God, takes it away from Him to the degree that those confidences ultimately rely on something and someone less than God Himself, they are idols. That's an idol. Anything that displaces my relationship with God. God is do something, I don't give it to Him, I give it to something or someone else. That is idolatry. Now, Beale has a quote that's worth 
Put this in your book. Memorize this. It's short. It's pithy. It's easy. It's on the bottom of your study sheet also. Beale says this. This is worth the price of the book. What people revere, they resemble. Either for ruin or restoration. What people revere, they resemble. Either for ruin or for restoration. So what I revere is what I worship. I take my cues from. I will resemble it. And if it's an idol, it will ruin me. But if it's Christ, it'll save me. It will transcend me. It will raise me up in my life. But it's whatever I revere. What is the object of my worship? It'll ruin me. It'll save me. Now, the other one I've got here on your sheet is strongholds. I don't know if I've got this written down for you as a definition or not, but a stronghold is a controlling but false concept which gives direction to other thoughts and actions. A stronghold is a controlling but false concept that gives direction to other thoughts and actions. And guys, this is the way this works. <clears throat> I'm going to have to sort of wind down quickly here. 2 Corinthians 10.5, Paul says we're tearing down, in one translation, strongholds. Every lofty thing that's exalted against the knowledge of Christ. This is the way this works. The stronghold's the castle on the hill. It determines everything that's going on around it. When you and I have a stronghold, that thought, that false concept, it informs what we think and what we do. So a stronghold produces an idol. And an idol produces sin. We look at our life and we say, I've got this sin issue. Yes and no. Sin is the fruit. That sin, that's the fruit. But you go back and you say, I have an idol. And the idol is based on a stronghold. It's a false concept that's directing my life in one arena or another. So for instance, some strongholds. Illicit pleasure will satisfy me. Illicit pleasure will make me feel okay about myself. Illicit pleasure will comfort me and I'll feel better about myself. Think here, pornography, immorality in any stripe, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, some illicit pleasure. I'll go do that. I'll use that. I'll use them. And then I'll feel okay. The sin is the fruit of the stronghold. The idols are the fruit of the stronghold. I'm, I'm only being consistent, you see? If I believe this thing, then I act consistently with it. If the stronghold is false, I'm going to end up with sin at the end. You can't get anyplace else. So Paul says we want to tear down those strongholds, those false concepts we operate on. We want to replace them with the truth. Got to be in the, in the Bible for that again, don't we? To oppose the strongholds in our life, we have to know what the truth is. Jesus says your word is truth. When we, Meditate in the truth of the Scriptures. I'm opposing. I'm tearing down sometimes just brick by brick, but I'm tearing down those strongholds in my life that inform my idolatry, that inform my sin. So we've got to get back to the root. The root is, what do I think? What do I really believe? Those are the strongholds. Also, last, the company we keep. 1 Corinthians 15.33, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Guys, you can count on this. You can count on this. You know, parents will say, I can't tell you how many parents I've talked to over the years, they'll say something like this, little Johnny fell into the wrong crowd. Little Johnny fell in, and you know, they're letting Johnny off the hook, aren't they? He fell. He tripped, wasn't his fault. Man, he ended up in this group of robbers and thieves and whatever. Little Johnny's not the problem. You know what I always say? 
maybe little Johnny is the wrong crowd. Maybe little Johnny isn't quite as innocent as you think. Maybe he's the one the other parents are pointing at. So when we're talking about the wrong crowd first, ask yourself this, am I the wrong crowd? Is my little Johnny or little Sally, are they the wrong crowd? Before we start doing this. Now we got to do this anyway. When our girls were little, developing friendships, which we were all into, great, love it, want it. But we said this is the caveat on those friendships. Who's becoming like who? Because they had little friends. If they become like their friends, we're in trouble. It's going counter to our parenting. And man, did we fight this, you know, a lot. Who's becoming like who? That's the thing. That's what you want. So bad company corrupts good morals. Uh, Let me wind down briefly here. By the way, you have a a worksheet in your uh, bulletin, in your study sheet. I hope you'll take that home. And sort of just pray through that a little bit. Think through that a little bit when you go home. The last thing here is where is our heart? Guys, external behavioral changes are not the first priority to God. Guys, religious people, again, I've said this for years. If you want to be religious, go find a better place. Find a better crowd. Find something more fun. Who in the world would want to waste their life being a religious hypocrite? I've cleaned my life up on the outside. I look good. I hope you tell me I look good. You look good. But we're empty inside. Why? Go have some fun. If that's your your choice, go have some fun. God's not interested in cleaning up the outside. That's not where He starts. Ever. He's talking about heart transformation. If any of you end up going to this biblical counseling conference, hint, hint, plug, plug, next year uh, in Indiana, uh, you can't get through day one of track one without hearing this. Why do we do the things we do? Because we want the things we want. That's profound. Actually, that's profound. Why do we do the things we do? Because we want the things we want. Guys, if we want to change our exterior, what do we do? We change our interior. If you have change without affecting your heart, you're the same person. Cleaned up a little bit, you're not transformed into Christ's image. That's not it. So if we want to change the outside, if we want to get rid of the sin at the end of the day, you've got to change your heart. What is my heart set on? Who is my heart set on? That absolutely determines... Your transformation, it determines what you think, what you believe, what you become. It can't be otherwise. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Why did I say those words? Because that's what I thought in my heart. I say, oh honey, I didn't mean that. Well, yeah, I did. My sinful self meant that. I've got to change my heart. You know, fear of man will produce outward change, but it's hollow Pride can produce external change, but it makes us Pharisees. This is the thing that will take you home. Your motivation. My motivation. Heart change. The glory of God. The love of God. The love for God. The knowledge of Christ. God Himself will take you home. The knowledge of Jesus Himself. The knowledge of God Himself. As He is. Who He is. What He's like. That can fill your heart. That can overflow your heart. Change your motives. Change the direction of your transformation. You know, sometimes we say for the glory of God and I'm shallow and I know that. And sometimes when I I don't know what that looks like. Do this for the glory of God. What does that look like? But if I tell myself something like this, John Piper's 
talked to the church about this for decades now. Delight yourself in God. The Psalms say that, by the way. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. If I delight myself in Christ, I'll become like Him. If He's the object of my delight and my pleasure, I'll become like Him. My heart will be drawn to Him. I'll have heart change because my heart will be drawn out to Him. So really, at the end of the day, when we're talking about transformation, the the guiding star, the guiding principle is, what is your heart set on? If you see sin in your life, it points back to idols. They point back to strongholds. It's what you believe. It's what I believe. If we want to change what we believe, we have to change where our heart's at, what our heart is set on. God's will for your life and mine is transformation into the image of Christ. And that transformation occurs as I make Him the object of my worship. Father, would You help us to dispense with small gods and small ways of thinking? Lord, would You help us to say goodbye to little sins that entertain us in the moment? Lord, would You enable us to see the vastness of Your glory, the the immensity of Your goodness and Your grace? And Lord, would You fill our hearts up to overflowing so that all we want is more of You? Lord, we know if that happens, we'll become more and more fully the image you always intended us to be through your son, Jesus. We, we do ask that you'd honor him in that, in his name. Amen.